All right, welcome to Masterclass Theology in our Matthew class. I'm, I'm Joel, also known as Big Rev. Let's open up in prayer. God, I thank you for tonight. And it's a special night, Lord, where all around us we're hearing uh, tornado sirens and uh, where our minds might be uh, pondering the what we don't want to ponder for a moment. And we just, I just pray, Lord, that you calm our hearts and help us to lean upon you right now. And as we look at this very, um, very very sad and, 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 and kind of odd, shameful, graphic uh, text tonight, Lord, where you are led to the cross. And I just pray, God, that our time would be fruitful, that we would give you glory, and that this would uh, be productive to us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, our class tonight is entitled Shame. And I got to thinking about shame. I want you to just pause right now in your heart. And when I mention the word shame to you, what comes to mind? Think back on your life. Now, if you've already confessed sins and received forgiveness, I'm not asking you to relitigate anything in your soul. But just think about when someone says shame to you. What comes up in your heart? We're not sharing this. This is something maybe it's a sin you did many years ago. It is for me. Maybe it's an attitude you've repented of. Maybe it's something that's in your past. Maybe it's something you still struggle with. I know growing up, I didn't fear a spanking. The thing that I feared the most was my mom saying, shame on you. Hearing shame on you from my mom, oh, that was it. Occasionally, I'll hear my wife or myself, we'll, we'll tell our kids, shame on you, and I pause. Oh, wow, that, that's right. That, those are the words. Shame. Now, shame is an appropriate response to sin. Shame means your conscience is at work, that God is working on you in the midst of whatever you are doing that you ought to be ashamed of. But shame can be crippling. Shame can lead to this depressive state where you just don't want to climb out of bed, where you just can't function anymore, where shame takes a hold of you and begins to have a life of its own. When we don't have Jesus, when we don't have what he accomplished on the cross, shame becomes the last chapter of our books. Because sin, sin that is never dealt with, becomes the last chapter of our books. Kind of like when Adam and Eve sinned, they got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. But the cherubim, the flaming sword, they can't come back. If the great plan of salvation never takes place, they are always out, out of the Garden of Eden. They are never going back. That's what sin does. So shame. Jesus is going to endure a lot of shame in our text tonight. It's going to be rough. Really rough. This is not a fun text to study. It's a text that we've all read and heard probably a bajillion times. But it's not fun. Nobody who watches the very well-done movie, The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson, nobody watches that for fun. You just don't sit down and say, you know, I'm in the mood. Let's just watch that and pop some popcorn. And, and uh, no, no. That's all right. Our friend tonight is our tornado siren. And it's, uh... But let's begin. We're in uh, Matthew 27, shame. We start with responsibility, verses 1 to 10. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, huh, Matthew has to put that in there again, doesn't he? When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. More on that in a minute. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. He kind of had a, oh, there's a character in that old TV show, The Golden Girls, Blanche Devereaux, that she always exits a room with drama. Like, huh, and she leaves the room every time. And we have drama queens and drama kings in our lives that live that way, that always has some kind of drama. And like, oh, and they got to storm out of the room. Judas had us a drama moment right here. Judas's moment. The chief priest picked up the coin and said, it's against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. Oh, so now they have a conscience. Okay. 
So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. Evidently, they didn't know how to deal with Gentiles when they died. What are we going to do? We can't give them a Jewish burial. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll bury him in this field. Okay. So it actually solved the problem for them. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They, they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. We got a historical note here. Pilate was appointed prefect by Tiberius Caesar in AD 26. Prefects, they govern small troubled areas. And that is how I would describe Palestine. If the Roman Empire had an armpit and a festering armpit, it would be Palestine. Palestine was such a not place to live that Rome had a special deal with the Jews. If they just behaved, they could worship their God. Like, we don't care. You do not have to sing praises to Caesar and light incense in his name. As long as you behave, you get your Passover and you get your temple. And if you just shut up and play nice, you can do your thing. Because Rome cared above anything else. Rome wanted peace. Peace. It was like the mother was like, all right, just take your toy. and just, Can we have some quiet for a bit? Please. I've heard too much screaming in the house today. Could you please just quiet down? That's what Rome wanted. Rome just wanted peace. So as long as Pilate, who is from the place called Pontus, he's called Pontius Pilate, as long as Pilate delivered that peace, he always had a job. But these Jews were rancorous, and they didn't like this Pilate, and so they always went back, they, they, they sent a delegation to Caesar and to try to tell on Pilate and to get Pilate to come and, and yeah, so Pilate actually was always in trouble, it seemed like, with Caesar. Prefects go over to small troubled area, and in judicial matters, they possess complete power of life and death. If the prefect wanted to kill you in a court of his law, you're dead. The only way you get out of it is if you happen to be a Roman citizen and you appeal to Caesar. Then he had to send you on your way. And we see in the book of Acts is what the apostle Paul does. He doesn't do it to Pilate, but he does it to someone else. He appeals to Caesar. Every Roman citizen has the right to appeal to Caesar. They get it once. And uh, so he can't touch you then. He has to send you to Rome and you have to talk to Caesar. And whatever Caesar decides, that's it. So the religious authorities got their ducks in a row regarding Pontius Pilate. So we, this text begins here. The chief priests, elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. Well, that's kind of a misnomer because they don't execute anybody. Rome holds the sword. Pilate holds the sword. They can't do that at all. So what are they doing? They're realizing we've now convicted him. Only Pilate can kill him. So let's now do the political wrangling. Let's now make our case the best way we can to get Pilate to say, oh, no, he didn't and kill him for us. So they got to do that. They got to get they got to get it figured out. So and they're thinking to themselves, if we play this Messiah business, Pilate's going to be like, I don't care about that. You're, you and your silly Messiah. But that doesn't matter to me. Blasphemy. Seriously. I care that he blasphemes your God. You're lucky you get to worship your God. Why do I care? So they don't do that, do they? They're trying to figure out what's the best plan. Don't play the blasphemy card. Oh, that works with the Jews. Play the king card. Play that card that says he's claiming to be a king. And that means that he is the worst kind of criminal, an insurrectionist. He's the one that's going to plot. He's one of those Jews, those zealots. He's like them. One of those Jews that is trying to overthrow Rome. Yeah. So that's the card that they're going to play. Because that makes sense. Because Pilate's not going to care about anything else. What are the ironic and condemning words in verse 3 to 4? They're this. They say to Judas, what is that to us? Judas says, I've, I, I, I've killed innocent blood. What is that to us? Well, that's ironic. You are the most religious people in the world. The Jewish world. What do you mean, what is that to you? You're going to throw a fit that you can't take blood money in a few verses? But 
it's, it's, Judas is claiming to have betrayed an innocent man. Oh, yeah, we don't really care. Why would we care about that? That's right. You're the spiritual shepherds of the people. Sorry to get sarcastic, but it's awful ironic that you don't care about those kind of things now. That's your responsibility. Wrong, chief priests. You're not skirting that responsibility. Later on, Pilate is going to do a Jewish thing. Romans weren't big hand washers, like a ceremonially hand. Jews were. Remember the Pharisees? Why do your disciples not wash the outside of the cup before they, you know, they threw a fit about the washing. So Pilate washes his hands and makes a big Jewish gesture to them to kind of poke them in the eye like Mo Curly and Larry. Like he's going to skirt responsibility. No, Pilate, you're also not going to skirt responsibility. Judas, you gave the money back, so I guess you're off the hook. No, Judas, you're not off the hook. You see, our sins have to be dealt with. We have to repent. We have to live a new life. Paul describes it as the old self being put away and putting on the new self. We don't see that here. In fact, Judas in his depression and shame went to go hang himself. A word about that, just a moment. Some critics like to say, oh, this is different than Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 is awful graphic. In fact, uh, Luke puts it in parentheses about what happened to Judas. He went and hung himself and talked about his guts spilling. Okay, I don't want to You can read it on your own, but it's God's word, so it's fair to bring up. Oh, it's different than here. No, it's not. It doesn't have to be. Don't pick at nits. There, there's not enough information. There's really not enough information to make any kind of decision on that. Judas very easily could have hung himself over a branch, over a cliff, and there's like a million cliffs in that area with tree branches hanging over the edge of him. He could have hung himself, tossed it over the tree branch, and hung there until he died in the scorching 90-degree heat with the bugs and the bees and all the kinds of things going after him. And then when the branch breaks, boom, like we sing, uh, when the bell breaks, the cradle. Yeah, well, that's a horrible children's rhyme, but that's what it could have happened with, with Judas here. He could have crashed to the valley, the ravine, and then all of a sudden, bleh. Okay, so Acts 1 could happen just fine. We don't have a lot of information here, so don't. This is not a moment where you're like, oh, I got you, Bible. You're, you're saying two different things. Scripture number four presents patterns of God's people rejecting God and betraying him. And so Matthew here is drawing upon part of that. He mentions Jeremiah, something from Jeremiah 19. He's also referencing Zechariah, two prophets. And in this time here, it's like God's people are rejecting God and rejecting whoever God sends. You know, Jesus says, which of the prophets did you not kill? And kind of like apostatizing from God and rejecting and betraying him. They rejected their prophets, and they finally rejected their Messiah. Jesus was cheaply valued, 30 pieces of silver. His, the betrayal money went to a purpose that pointed to the destruction of the nation. Yeah, they purchased a field that was called the field of blood. Hello, all of Jerusalem was going to be the field of blood. They were going to betray Rome one last time, and Rome was going to say, that's it. In AD 70, kaboom, and level everything. The Jews are still waiting for another temple. That second temple was destroyed. Pilate, 11 to 26. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. We got Isaiah 53, 7. Although I, I don't know if that's on Matthew's mind here. You can't prove it or disprove it. But it's... Like a sheep before his shears was silent. That's Jesus here. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply. Not even to a single charge. To the great amazement of the governor. It's as if Pilate is starting to have some respect. It's like if Pilate's looking at this Jesus guy and going, whoa. There's something about this guy. He's taking all that malarkey from them, not saying a I've never seen anyone like this. And he hadn't. In the other Gospels, they have a philosophical discourse about truth. And Pilate offers the, the now iconic phrase, what is truth? 2,000 years, our society, I don't think, has figured it out on their own. They keep trying to. Our society is like that uh, proverbial um, ship with the sail unfurled and the winds of time and change and culture blow it hither and yon. 
And wherever the winds blow, the ship goes. But it doesn't really get any better. It doesn't really get the answers they're looking for. The word of the Lord stands forever. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. Yes, they both happen to be, have a Jesus first name, a common name. Okay, Jesus is, is the name Joshua. This is Yeshua, Joshua, Yehoshua. It's, it's the name um, that's a very, very common name. And Barabbas, it means son of a father. Very kind of general name, like Bar Mitzvah, son, Bar, and Abba. You know, Abba Father, Jesus says, Bar Abba, son of a father. Who is this guy? We don't really know. But by golly, they knew. Holy moly, they knew. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked, Which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus, and Pilate does this wordplay here Jesus, the Barabbas, or Jesus, the Christos, the Messiah. For he knew it was out of self-interest they handed Jesus over to him. When Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent to him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. In my, in my research today, I realized I, I, I came across a bit of information I did not know before which I'm not that smart. There's plenty of things I don't know before. But Pilate here made a tactical error. To receive, for the crime that, that Jesus was accused of doing and the crime that Barabbas did do, they're calling for the cross. We're going to see here, they're going to say crucify him. Pilate had options. There were three options he could have done for a political insurrectionist. Number one, crucify. Number two, Banishing. Just like, all right, I banish you out of the area. And then number three, and I hate to picture Jesus in this position, but he could have gone to the amphitheater and faced wild animals. <laughs> that was the third option. So, and it was within his power to make the decision. He could have just said, okay, we're going to find you guilty and you're going to go face the lions. And there's nothing you can do about it, people. Instead, he forgets to play his card. So what do you want me to do with them? Barabbas, they answer, well, what do you want me to do with them? They all answer, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? But they all shouted louder, crucify him! When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting. And again, we don't want uproars. We don't want fights. We don't want riots. We don't want any of that stuff. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood. No, you're not. Sorry. It is your responsibility. No, it's not. As if it's not yours. All the people answered, his blood is on us and our children. Wow. They spoke a little better than they knew. By the way, Jesus is going to be mocked so many times in this text. Every time he is mocked, pay attention. Because the mockers all speak better than they know. Okay? They're mocking him because he's the king of the Jews. Yes, he is the king of the Jews. He's the king of all creation, in fact. But they want to use it as a mock. They're speaking better than they know. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged. By the way, that's a very small verse. Flogging was... Arguably the worst part of this entire experience physically. If you get flogged twice, you're dead. You don't survive twice. You barely survive one. Jesus, we're going to read, survives being flogged like a man, I might add, and carries his cross to the gates of the city. Jesus was not a wimp. Flogging revealed parts of your body that are not revealed usually. You're seeing things that you don't usually see because your skin covers it up. And handed him over to be crucified. That's the language of Isaiah 53. Handed over. Historical accounts describe Pilate as a tyrant. He stole money from the Jews' temple for building projects. He quelled riots by slaughtering the people. 
Critics see the pilot of the Gospels as weak, insecure, and pro-Jesus. But tyrants have been known to be personally insecure. Pilate was known to have hated the Jews. He hated the Sanhedrin. Also, Pilate was used to punishing guerrilla fighters and criminals. He was used to the Barabbases. He wasn't used to this cat, Jesus, who wasn't even going to defend himself. He didn't know what to do with that. Jesus was therefore not the normal person who stood before Pilate. Finally, history records that Pilate was rebuked by Caesar at an earlier time, and he probably would have feared being rebuked a second time. Caesar actually removed Pilate in AD 36. Pilate himself got banished just a few years later. As for the trial itself, if Jesus had remained silent and not said anything, Pilate would have to say guilty. He would have to be condemned. The way the Roman jurisprudence worked at the time, if the defendant refuses to speak, guilty. Because all the defense at the time used whatever the defendant then said. Now they can build their defense. We do that in our court of law today. How does the defendant plead? Guilty or innocent? If he never answers the question, what are you going to do with that trial? At some point, they're just going to assume, okay, he's not talking. Guilty, I guess. Well, there was no I guess then, because there's a little bit more power here under the hand of Pilate. If Jesus never spoke at all, he'd be guilty. But he does speak, doesn't he? Are you the king of the Jews? The one time, the only red letters in this entire chapter thus far, you have said so. So the fact that Jesus does speak, now Pilate has the conundrum. Now, because he has spoken, Pilate actually has to make a decision. He can't wiggle out of this. Hmm. A word about Barabbas, um, Roman punishment. Rome, again, um, what's really interesting I found, when Jesus is crucified, how many total crosses were there? Who remembers? Three. Three. Okay, because Jesus is crucified and the text is going to describe someone on his right and someone on his left. Now, Barabbas, we're going to find out about him. The text describes him as an insurrectionist. He wasn't just some simple thief, some simple robber. No, the word is much deeper than that. He was a traitor. Benedict Arnold, he's the one who Rome is seeing him. They got to catch people like him. He was not just an insurrectionist. He was the rare insurrectionist that was caught. These are people today that might get sent to Guantanamo Bay. Rome actually got one. This is the one they don't want to get rid of. So for Pilate, this is a slam dunk. This wimpy Jesus guy that hadn't done anything, I mean, seriously, blasphemy, versus trying to overthrow Rome. By the way, Barabbas would have been a hero. They would have looked at him and said, oh yeah, one of us that took it to you, Roman scum. Yeah, give us that one. Jesus was popular too. But I wonder about those three crosses. I wonder if Barabbas was part of a trio. Because only certain people got the cross. You had to be an enemy of the state to get the cross. I wonder if Barabbas and his two boys were all going to get the cross. But he had to get rid of Barabbas. And the people demanded that Jesus get the cross. I wonder if, and this kicks my rear, I cried today thinking about this. Jesus got Barabbas' cross. That means something to me. Jesus got my cross. The one that was released, debt done, debt finished, paid in full, you can go free, was Barabbas. Jesus would literally pay his debt on his cross. Woo! I'm going to cry again. That's powerful stuff. But we don't know about three crosses yet. We got to say something before we are done with Barabbas. Wow. They would have both been popular figures. You know, Pilate's no idiot. He, he isn't. Any leader who's, who's in a great position is there for a reason. They're, they usually can do their job well, and they, that's why they're there, and that's why they continue to be there and continue to have power and continue to do this. Pilate is not a dumb guy. 
He realized in verse 18, he knew it was out of self-interest. They had handed Jesus over to him. He saw what they were doing. He saw what was going on behind the scenes. He saw all these things going on. He knew that this was just a, a political game they were playing. But he had to keep the peace. What are the two things Pilate's wife provided? Matthew gives us this thing about Pilate's wife. And we're, we're, we're left to wonder about earlier in Matthew, oh, all those dreams. Joseph had a dream about, oh, he's supposed to marry Mary. And Joseph had another dream about what? He's supposed to uh, leave and go to Egypt. And uh, the wise men had a dream. All those dreams. Is this God speaking in a dream one more time? Probably not. I don't know, but probably not. But Pilate's wife gives us two things. One, she gives us, husband, don't you kill that innocent man. Oh, innocent man, huh? Wow. This is pretty common knowledge that Jesus isn't deserving of this. Pilate knows what's going on here. The second thing she does, she pulls hubby aside to tell him this, because she's right there. And the Jewish leaders do what? Next verse, they take advantage of that time and start working the crowd. Because maybe some people are thinking, oh, Barabbas, yeah, he's kind of our guide. He's taking it to Rome and, you know, we're with you there. Wow, I mean, he's doing what we couldn't do or we, we, you know, we don't approve of his methods. But by golly, he's, he's trying to take it to our Roman overlords. And we got to at least respect that, I guess. And Jesus, well, everyone loves Jesus. I don't know. I, they're both pretty popular guys. I don't know what we're going to do. And that, now the crowd is maybe wondering a bit. And so the chief priests are taking advantage of Pilate being distracted by his lovely wife to talk about a silly dream. And now, verse 20, they start working the crowd. Hey, I know you're, I know you're a waffling crowd. I don't know what they said. I'm just trying to guess. Because all we know is the crowd is going, I don't know, to, yeah, crucify him. They're probably saying, yeah, I know you, you, you think Barabbas is bad, but we say that Jesus is bad. We say. So you got to trust us on this one. He's bad. Jesus did the unthinkable. He blasphemed. So what? He went against Rome. You, you like that, actually. But Jesus, he went up against God. He went up against the temple. you got to kill Jesus. They whipped them up in a frenzy. Like taking a jug of heavy whipping cream and putting it in the jar and putting it in the, the, the food processor and making whipped cream out of it. They whipped them all up. Okay. Verse 24 should remind you of verse 4. It's your responsibility. Yeah, that's what the chief priest said of Judas, didn't he? Why does this matter to us? It's your responsibility. Matthew repeats that phrase just for us to read. Interpret verse 25 in light of the Jewish remnant. There have been theologians that have said, oh, let his blood be upon us and our children, and then they turn into anti-Semites. Good, solid, God-fearing Christians who turn into anti-Semites, as if, yes, now Israel and all the Jews forevermore are now all going to hell, and they're all now the worst people ever. They killed our Jesus. How dare they? The worst part of Nazism you hear. And this is why many Jews today don't trust Protestants. Because they look at us and they say, well, you're just like Hitler. Kind of like a Lutheran-esque Protestant. And they use that to, to want to go after the Jews because the Jews killed their Jesus. No, no, no. We don't view the Jews that way. We view the Jews in a Romans 9, 10, and 11 kind of way. Which is... God has blinded their eyes for a time, but that blinding one day will stop. They are God's chosen people. Now we, we're told in Galatians, Paul tells us, through Christ, we're also Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. But we view the Jews as in there are some Jews, and many of us know Jews, who have turned to Jesus. They continue to be the remnant of faith prophesied in Isaiah's day and continuing to this day. My gosh, at very minimum, how could you blame all Jews when literally the first Jews, the first, excuse me, the first disciples, every one of the disciples, a Jew. The first disciples, 
like the disciples, all Jews. Are they bad too? They're also the children. So no, we don't view all Jews this way. We don't view this as prophecy like, oh yeah, now we are all anti-Semites because of this verse, because they killed our Lord. No. We talked about this last week. Nobody killed Jesus. He gave himself. Jesus is not a martyr. Jesus is not a hero. Jesus is a sacrifice. Jesus is the equivalent of the Passover lamb that was taken and sacrificed. That's what Jesus is. He gave himself, as he says in Matthew 20, as a ransom for many. He is the payment of the payment of the of what needs to be paid. It's not about someone killed Jesus. He gave himself to be killed. That's not semantics. That's the gospel. That's everything. If Jesus was just simply killed, that means Satan scored a point. Satan scored zero points. He is defeated. The war is over. The battle still rage on for a time, but the war is over. All Satan can do now is the last gasp of an already defeated foe. Let's finish this out. Mockery, 27 to 44. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole country company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. That's mockery all by itself. What did Caesar wear? What was the greatest thing anybody could wear on their head? You win the Olympic Games. You win this crown, this laurel leaf crown. All these statues, you see these leaves going around their head, don't you? That was the victory laurel leaf crown. The greatest gold medal of all time. You competed to win that. If you won that, you were it. So they made one for Jesus. And they probably took thorny palm branches. The, palm, the, the thorns they had around. And they twisted them up to look like that victory crown. Theologically, that was a victory crown when you think about what was accomplished on the cross. But yes, that's what they did to him. They put a staff in his right hand. They knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail the king of the Jews. They normally would get on their knees in front of Caesar and go, Ave Caesar, and slam their breast and point out their fist. Ave Caesar, Ave Kaiser. Instead, hail the king of the Jews. They spit on him. They took the very staff they gave him and struck him on the head. What's on his head? Probably two-inch thorns. Today I was working on my car and I, I had a goofball moment and I stopped what I, I wasn't paying attention to what I was doing and I opened the car door, which is on my SUV with the door is kind of has a sharp corner on it. And I was just, my head was in the wrong place because I was being an idiot and I opened it and all of a sudden, I about knocked myself cold with my own car door. And I go inside the house, and my wife is saying, what in the world? I had blood coming down from my forehead, going down. And I mean, it was so hard. You know what I mean? You, you, stub your, you, you hit your head on something, you just kind of rub it. And, uh, it was so much, I was rubbing my head, and finally, that wasn't working. I just had to go, ah! I just had to call out in pain. Like, my goodness, I can't imagine a crown of thorns. And now they take a staff and start beating on it. My goodness, Wow. They mocked him. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe, put his own clothes back on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Now, I don't know why Jesus, a lot of times what they do, when, when, what, what the records say, you, you, they usually kept you naked because they wanted the cross to be as shameful as possible. I don't know why he, Jesus, wasn't naked at any point in this thing. I, I, I'm not asking you to think about his naked body. I'm just, they, let, they allowed him to wear his clothes again. Maybe there were some kind of Jewish sensitivities, the Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread. Maybe they didn't want to poke the Jews too much in the eye. I don't know. But he walked. He carried. They led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon. I remember serving in, the inner, in an inner city church in, in Racine, Wisconsin. And uh, I was the only white guy there. And they, they called me the cream in their coffee. And 
And uh, we had fun. They said, you know, we love you, big guy, because Oreo cookies, you know, the black part of the Oreo, you get tired of that. You need the white part. I mean, you got to have some of that. It's just, you, both the white part and the black part are both tasty. But, you know, if you just have the white, that's pretty, you just, that's nasty after a while. And if you just have the black, well, that's just, you're wanting more so that you're the cream in our, you're, you're the white part in our Oreo cookie. I'm like, oh, that's fine. But I always remember as I'm sitting there waiting to talk to the senior pastor one day, because it was kind of something like a, uh, like an internship or something, so I had to meet on a regular basis. There was a sign, and the sign said, Famous Black People of the Bible. And, and I, by the way, I fully believe, as I, my limited study of genetics and my biology degree, that Adam and Eve would have been as black as possible. Because white can come from black, but black can't come from white in terms of the color spectrum. So it would make sense, if they're the father and mother of everybody genetically, that they would be as black as possible. But I digress. They were on that list. Moses' wife was on that list. And again, this is in a mostly African-American church. We're not talking about African-Americans here because we're talking about the Bible. So they were talking about people of color or black people. I think, I think the chart said famous black people of the Bible. And Simon of Cyrene was on there. Now, we don't know much about Simon of Cyrene. All we know is Cyrene was part of North Africa. Egypt's part of North Africa. Africa's massive. There's all kinds of colors in Africa. One of my best friends in college was an African-American man, but is whiter than I am. And he actually, I remember him petitioning the NAACP. He's like, I am African-American. He's from South Africa. He's like, I'm African. He's got a recent citizenship. Like, I'm African-American. I want my scholarship. I, I forget how he, if that won, he won or not. I was like, you're whiter than I am, sir. But he's making an argument. Africa is massive. So we don't know about Simon of Cyrene. Some people look at Simon and say, oh, he must have felt so much for Jesus. Uh, no. All we know here is that a Roman soldier said, carry his cross. And Simon said, uh-huh. Like he had a choice. Yeah. It was it. It doesn't matter what he felt about Jesus. He probably didn't like it. He says he's coming in from the fields. Wow. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. We get the word Calvary from the Latin calva, which means skull or a kind of bald sloped head. Skull. They offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink. Don't overthink this. They're messing with Jesus. Here, you're thirsty. Have something. What is this? Gall? Um, that's what people take when they want to kill themselves. It is sour. It is bitter. It is nasty. You don't drink it. That's something like what Socrates had hemlock or something. with. People would do that to really drink stuff to make them vomit or something. It's, it's like, you know, serum of Ipecac today or something. It's like, this is what they did. This isn't about refreshing Jesus' mouth. They put it up to there just to have him, just, just to poke him in the eye one more time. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots and sitting down. They kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. <laughs> one last shot they get to take. Two rebels are crucified with him. Rebels is a better translation than two robbers. Robbers don't get the death penalty. Rebels, insurrectionists, they get the death penalty. Okay. One on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priest, the teacher of the law, the elders mocked him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. No, you won't. Anybody who says, well, only if God would just give this to me. If only I can make this field go, God. If only this can happen. God, if only, if only this will happen, Lord, I promise I'll go to church. No, you won't. Because if God has to answer to you, if God has to constantly do you favors to get your faith, who's God and who's not? It's like God's an idol at that point. Oh, just come down from the cross and we'll believe. Oh, stop. Don't you know that if he comes down off the cross, all is lost? Wow. 
He saved others, but he can't save himself. I bet that hurt the worst. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross. We'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. Sorry, God is too busy forsaking him right now. Turning his back on his beloved son. He said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. The Jews, number one, mock him as Messiah. The Gentiles mock him as king. Number two, the way the Romans are described tells us that Matthew wasn't trying to go easy on Pilate. Some people have said, oh, Matthew had it in against those Pharisees and Sadducees. And Matthew wanted to make sure he could take one last dig at the Sanhedrin that condemned them all. Then why would Matthew report of the horrible, horrible, horrible things the Roman soldiers were doing? Have human beings ever acted as badly as those Roman soldiers were doing? Probably not. That's, that's the worst humanity gets right there. Really bad. I don't think Matthew was worried about Pilate and making him look good or look bad. He just presented it as it was. Number three, this is not small. Don't ever domesticate the cross. The church has done this for 2,000 years. We wear it as a piece of jewelry. I'm not condemning your, your, your necklaces or anything like that. I've worn crosses. But it's like we've domesticated it. We've taken the claws off the cat. We've looked at the cross. Like, oh, yeah, the cross. Seriously? Don't ever domesticate the cross. Don't ever defang that kitty cat. Defang, declaw, you know what I'm saying. The cross is such shame, such curse. It was designed to be the most shame-filled experience anyone could have. Do you know that a Roman citizen could not be crucified? A Roman citizen could only be crucified if Caesar himself said so. He'd appeal to Caesar and Caesar himself. If he said you could be crucified, you're crucified, of course. But until then, it is such a shameful death, you would not dare give it to a Roman citizen. That was a great thing about citizenship. You didn't have to die like a crucified person. There was nothing worse than being crucified. You're there naked, dying because you can't breathe as the birds of the air pick, pick at you. I can't stand it when I'm sitting out there by a lake and mosquitoes won't leave me alone. Imagine, imagine the shame, everyone walking past you. Oh, wow, there's nothing you're hiding anymore. And then if you're a Jew, you've got the great verse in Deuteronomy, cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. Everything about the cross is morbid and shameful and horrible. You better think of that when you're wearing your cross. Don't you dare forget it. I'm not condemning you for wearing a cross. Because it's that cross Jesus paid your price. It is a religious moment to wear a cross. Jesus tells you to bear your cross, to carry that cross after you've denied yourself. That's a religious moment too. Because it's a very rated R, morbid moment. Oh, the Bible's not rated R, hogwash. You don't carry your cross in a rated G way. Ask Simon of Cyrene about that one. The mockers, of course, all speak better than they know. The royal son of God and the suffering servant meet their climax in Pilate's note. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Yes, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, here he is, his Messiah, this royal son of God. To a Jew, if he says son of God, they would have said, oh yeah, Messiah. We get it. Son of God, Messiah. Yeah, that's it. It flows trippingly off the tongue. But if that's your entire reading of the Old Testament, you're missing half. Because, yes, Jesus is the promised Son of God, Messiah, David's Son, God's Son, Messiah, but he's also Isaiah's suffering servant. So in Pilate's notes, the suffering servants and the Son of God climax. They come together in a climax. What's really creepy about this cross scene I think Satan's here in this cross scene. 
I know in the Passion the Christ with that Satan figure kind of going about and the snake and all that, kind of playing around with Jesus, a little kid you're chasing Judas around, a little creepy kid. Okay, and Satan, okay, I get it. But Satan is here, at least in spirit, in this crossing. How do I know? His words in Matthew 4, if you are the Son of God, do this. Turn this stone into bread. Jump off this tower. Do this. Do that. If you're the Son of God, what is it here? If you're the Son of God, save yourself. You've already suffered so much. Can't you just stop now? Haven't you made your point, Jesus? Isn't it all good now? You don't need to die. I mean, come on. You are, you've, you've already gotten flogged. You've already gotten rejected. You're bleeding to death. You're, you're, you're suffocating on the cross, lifting yourself up. They're going to come break your legs soon, Jesus. I mean, if you are the Son of God, don't you hear Satan from Matthew chapter 4? He tempted him way back then. Now Satan's getting his one last chance. Can I get this guy off of his path? Because this path is the path I don't want him on anymore. I wonder if Satan's beginning to see. When he entered Judas and arranged all this to happen, that God has something bigger in mind. And Satan's going to be defeated in just a couple hours. Oh, we got to get this guy off this cross. I wonder. It's just, we're dealing with the same book of the Bible, Matthew. Just 23 chapters earlier, Satan has said just the same words. I wonder if these people are inspired by this Satan who's trying to get Jesus to get off this cross. Or to, to not have to bear this suffering anymore. The greatest irony, Jesus had the power to save himself. But he could not save himself if he was to save others. I'll say that again. I think that hurt the most. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down. I bet that hurt. That's something we got to ask Jesus one day when we get to heaven. Jesus, did that hurt? I bet that hurt, that probably hurt you worse than the nails. Hearing people say that. You are literally dying in their place. Ah. He saved others. He has all this power then. He didn't have the power now. He can't save himself. You idiot. Seriously, person? He couldn't save himself if he was to save others. I get upset at the passion of the Christ. I see them beating Jesus. He's bleeding. I visited at the church of the, the, the Holy Sepulcher in, in, in Jerusalem. I've seen the spot where they flogged him. And people are there on their face before the slab of marble. And, and listen, if it wasn't right there, it was somewhere right there. Somewhere in that area, it's like people were just bowing down and crying. And there was a great emotional thing. I didn't do that. I walked by solemnly and, and it was, had a moment there, Jesus. And I watched the power of the passion of the Christ. And I shake my fist to the screen and I say, don't you dare do that to my Jesus. He's not my Jesus. If he doesn't have that done to him. How can he save others if he doesn't? It's like, hello. Hello. If he comes off the cross to prove you guys wrong, he ain't saving anybody. It's like, you don't know what you're saying. He can't save you unless he dies in this way. You don't know what you're saying to this man. I divided this chapter into these 44 verses and we'll finish 27 next week. And 28 is a much shorter Shorter chapter. We'll finish Matthew next week. The know, the be, and the do. I need to know this. Because I live with shame. I have things in my past and I'm a great sinner. Jesus is a greater Savior, of course. But I deal with my shameful past and I, I, I remember all the things I've ever done wrong. I remember, I remember, I remember the bitterness and it just, oh... All these things. I need to know this. My no is Jesus took my shame. I, I need that. Because otherwise my shame will threaten to just take and just right over me like, 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 like uh, the ocean waves. And then the undertow carries me back out. All over again. That's what shame does. Shame reminds you that you failed. And it wants you to be bitter. 
And bitterness is, is anger turned inward and then upward. Jesus took my shame. Though I feel shame, shame does not have to define me anymore. Because he took my shame. My be, I need to be appreciative of the cross. Holy moly. And again, this is mine. You write down your own stuff. If you like what I've written, you're welcome to it. If it kicks your rear end like it kicked mine, fine. I need to be appreciative of the cross. Because far too long, it's like, okay, yeah, you know, you make a little sign of the cross, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay. And you're like, oh, wow, look at that. Uh, you know, Jesus, wow, the cross. And well, isn't that a great thing? Isn't, that's our symbol, isn't it? Wow, look at that. That's our thing. No, the cross is something very shameful. Erwin Luther tells stories about in Istanbul, where it used to be called Constantinople, and the great churches that there had crosses everywhere, and the new overlords in that area take and destroy all the crosses, even on the buildings, because the cross is something horrible. How could God die? Wow, what a time to get uh, our first thunder. Amen. That's an amen, praise the Lord moment. All right. I need to be appreciative of the cross. Especially as I'm commanded by Jesus as a disciple to deny myself, deny myself, to pick up my cross and follow Jesus. I don't pick up my cross in the same way that Jesus picks up his cross. Because that would make me a masochist, like I'm going to die. No. Paul talks about that in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. The life I live in the body is not my own, but Christ who, who, who loved me and gave himself for me. So I don't crucify my flesh like Jesus was crucified. I crucify, which is still a rated R image, my desires. As Jesus was flogged, as Jesus was hammered, as Jesus was spiked and the crown of thorns, all of that is to be upon my sin, upon my desires. That's it. I need to appreciate the cross and do. No, I need, to, I need to know Jesus took my shame. B, I need to be appreciative of the cross and do. I need to submit to his healing. Because you see, Jesus, the gospel, is about reconciliation. It's about healing. And those who have been set free are free indeed. No longer do I crawl back into that vat of ick and start swimming. As in, oh yeah, that's me again. Oh, I just never will win. Oh, I'm a victim of circumstance, Curly once said. Oh, what, what am I going to do? Oh, no, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Jesus took my shame. I will appreciate that cross and I need to submit to his healing. That means I need to live differently, but I am submitting to him, not to my desires. This has been Matthew 27, our look at shame tonight. We'll see you next week.